Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Matt Feeney about Little Platoons. First, wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title in the episode description, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy the book through bookshop.org. I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this show, follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. I'm Michaeline Ducleff, author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Matt Feeney holds a political philosophy PhD from Duke, and he's a writer whose work has appeared in the National Review, New Yorker, Slate, and more. He's also the author of the new book, Little Platoons, A Defense of Family and the Competitive Age. Matt, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. So what was your goal with Little Platoons? The book kind of arose out of a, um, an article I wrote on college admissions in which I described the uh, kind of overall competition among uh, or for college slots as a, you know something that kind of ends up colonizing family life. And so the the book ended up becoming a, um, was was a kind of an investigation of other areas in which uh, family life gets colonized or gets taken over in analogous ways. And so that's kind of so I you know so so one thing was just really to defend family life, you know, kind of like construct an idea of family life that kind of matched my idea of it, which was a you know something of a defiant what I call an antinomian conception of family life, a little bit more old fashioned, where the kind of heroic kind of dimension of, of family relations, loyalty, that kind of thing, which are absolutely there and we, we feel as parents especially, but which are kind of unfashionable to celebrate. And I and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to kind of draw that out and to set those values and priorities of my own in contrast to the kind of normalizing grind that competition in modern family life subjects us to. Now, selfishly speaking, I have to admit that there are parts of this book that resonated more with me than others, specifically because I'm the dad of a four and a six-year-old right now, so I haven't Uh thankfully gotten to the college admissions part of this story just yet. But you do break this down into seven different categories, starting with parenting in public. How does operating in the public eye affect you as a parent? Parenting in public, the chapter itself, I kind of undertook as something of a, of a lark. I, In fact, its origin really kind of like I became motivated to write it when I had a conversation in a kind of roundtable about the book before it was ever even signed as a book with my publisher, in which a very skeptical, uh, very smart woman was um, was uh, questioning me on this a couple of things I was just saying about the, the plight of being a parent in public and how self-conscious it made me. And she was dubious about this. But then, you know, I thought I was looking at her. I'm thinking, you know, you're I'm the normal one. You're not the normal one. This woman was an, ex, you know, a exceedingly kind of confident, cocky person who I could see kind of shucking off the self-awareness that comes with being a parent, whereas I feel like I'm much more kind of normal in that regard. And so the way I kind of try to set it up is that, you know, parenting in public, as parents, we kind of interact with other parents via our social roles. And so that kind of puts us into a somewhat more old fashioned mode of interaction, where we kind of try to live up to our role. And uh, several different points throughout the book, I talk about how important social status is and the desire for social status is among us. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's simply a defining thing of, of who we are. And I think that with being parents and being a parent among other parents, is an area in which this tendency of ours is teased up from us and we enact it in, uh, you know, in ways that are kind of a little bit more direct and a little bit more dramatic than other ways. And so in one of the things that kind of one of the kind of historical or, you know, kind of speculative historical claims I want to I, I try to make is that the fact of our occupying public space together as parents may have kind of grown in its importance when parents started hanging around with their kids more. My parents didn't go to every baseball practice I had. They, they didn't even go to all the games, you know. They just were just, they were, they were around sometimes and, and not around others in terms of, you know. But these days, parents are obsessively involved with their kids' lives, which puts them in a kind of a weird social circuitry with other parents. And that's the, that's the um, kind of sociological observation that I, that I kind of try to build on. And we're definitely going to get into youth sports a little bit later on. You spent some time at a massive soccer tournament in Vegas and uh, made some interesting observations based on that. Now, I've said for a long time that there are very few things 
as self-serving for parents as a one-year-old's birthday party. And thankfully, our household, having a four- and six-year-old, has avoided going too far overboard with our kids' parties. But plenty of parents have no problem just spoiling their kids each and every year at their birthday. How does this mindset and these actions play into what a French anthropologist from the early 1900s called the gift economy? All right, so... I kind of explicate the work of a, a book called The Gift by Marcel Mauss, who is a founder of modern anthropology. And he's a great, great thinker. And he has this idea of the gift economy in which people in archaic societies kind of interact with each other. Really, they interact with each other via the gifts that they give to each other. This is really the, the, the cement of social life. And it's just that people have these very kind of ceremonial relations with each other. And it's the nature of life in a lot of pre-modern societies that people are very much identified with their social roles and they kind of interact via their social roles. And uh, as I said earlier, you know, it's kind of how we are as parents. Well, when it comes to an explicitly ceremonial event, like a birthday party, I think that this kind of need to, or the pressure to, or just the impulse to express yourself or to kind of feel obliged to kind of live up to some idea of what it means to be a parent falls upon you and you're like, well, what do I do? What, how do I express my love for my kid, my sense of my own status among other parents via this gesture of giving a party? And so it's just, and so when one person does it and then one gesture then kind of like enters into the bloodstream of the, enters into the kind of circuitry of the social relations and kind of sets a standard that other people might feel like they have to meet. And so one person does one thing for their kids, you know, like one person says, well, I'm going to have a clown one day just because I feel like I want to have a, a super, you know, fun birthday party. And, and the next time a parent comes around, well, okay, he had a clown. I got to like have a bouncy house, you know? And so you can see the way in which this sense of, you know, this is this kind of comparative sense, which again, I don't, you know, I think it's very easy to cast this in kind of critical terms, but I don't, I just think it's how we are as people that we find ourselves in these kind of circuitry, this kind of circuitry of, of, of social comparison, and we don't quite know what to do. And so we have to do, feel like we have to do something. And so birthday parties are one area in which you kind of make these social gestures as parents to other parents about yourself, about your kids and about these other things. And one of the things I kind of talk about in this chapter is how, you know, in archaic societies and these social, these gestures, these gift make giving gestures would be very kind of, for, for the most part, fairly closely prescribed. You, know, you pretty much know what you have to do. Whereas for us parents, we don't really know what we have to do. We only kind of go by what other parents are doing. And so it's this kind of constant uncertainty about how we should act. And again, I don't, I mean, I don't want to make this sound too dire. In fact, I, I write it in, I, I think, in a spirit of amusement, you know, it's okay to have a big, crazy birthday party, but at the same time, it's also kind of fun to just kind of think about the kinds of cues that we're responding to when we kind of make decisions we make about these things. Well, it's okay to admit that's a little bit of a parental pissing contest while also saying, yeah, I went to a birthday party for another kid at this trampoline park, and I really wish that I could bounce on some trampolines as one of the parents. Right. That's one of the things that happens is you feel like you, you know, this feels like a lot of fun. One of the things, and this is the way it kind of goes back to the more kind of archaic impulses is that there's a certain limit you might think that you want to you know, these you know parents want to uh, do it up or going to have a nice celebration for their kid or whatever but you have to realize that well it may be possible to go too far i make a joke in the book about what would happen if one some wealthy parent decides to take you know like 20 kids to the super bowl or something like that right on one hand it would be kind of cool but on the other hand it might be you know a lot of other parents might take it as something of a slight you know or, <laughs> or, or a diss right like the uh, this other dad is making us look cheap or something and so there's a way in which even though we kind of occupy this uncertain space in doing this where there's probably a sense in which we also observe limits and try not to be, you know, and people may lose sight of it and they may not do it in simply to be boastful or jerky, but they just lack a sense of what's appropriate. Anyway, it's a, it's, it is, I just find it an amusing example of the way in which we kind of find, you know, in a kind of very basic and fairly benign way, we find ourselves caught in these status circuits as parents and in, in, in the fact that they're kind of in, in the uncertainty in them kind of like infuses us with a degree of anxiety about what to do. And this can make things a little bit more intense. Matt, how much easier do you and I have it as dads versus moms in this competitive culture? That's a good question <laughs> for which I have something of an idiosyncratic answer. I think in that it's probably easier for you than it is for me because it's easier for, for my wife than it is for me in huh. a way in that, well, just that I'm kind of like a little bit over aware of this stuff and maybe more anxious than my wife. 
And so uh, she's easy. She's pretty good at the kind of social static I'm talking about that I feel myself a little bit sensitive to. She's pretty easy. She's pretty good at ignoring. But I will say that if you read about this stuff, and especially because much of the parenting literature is written by moms. And if you read this stuff, you realize that this is a recurrent theme in the stuff that they write. And they, I mean, I joke about it as being something I can kind of give or take because one of the way, I guess they're, to answer because one of the ways in which it is easier for me is that these judgments are generally not visited upon me personally. Whereas I think for moms, if you read the, the parenting literature for moms, they feel that the judgments are being visited upon them personally. And so a lot of the writing that you see about this stuff are these women writers who are mothers who just resent the, the, the amount of pressure that is, you know, kind of like that is put upon them personally, and they feel like they really have to fight against it. So yeah, it's tough for them. And I sense, sense I sympathize with them. So chapter two is titled getting into preschool. You use the terms preschool and daycare interchangeably. Why? There's a way in which I suppose you can see I'm making something of a point, which is to, to, to downplay the importance of, you know, whatever the educational importance of, of, of preschool. I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that there's not really much of a, a distinction made between these two terms in the academic literature on, on pre-K education. So it's just, you know, so anyway, I was just following that. My editor actually challenged me on that, bringing the question, making the distinction that, that you made. And I went, you know, kind of like look more closely and I'm like, well, you know, it's just, it's, they pretty much use the terms interchangeably. But that fact, I think, serves to kind of make an argument that I like to make, which is that the value of preschool, the academic value of preschool and the whatever value of daycare are largely the same thing, which is to say that there's not a great deal of academic benefit for preschool. I mean, it's most of the benefits from preschool are, according to the, the literature or the research on it, are more social. And another important aspect of this is that many of the important benefits, social benefits of preschool are kind of seen more in lower income kids. You know, the, the bourgeois parents that you see doing this preschool competition and stuff, they're making a big fuss about something that probably has very little um, impact on the outcomes that their own children will experience, but it has much more impact on the people who are not acting as high strung about preschool as they are. So socioeconomics matters here too. Yeah, so it matters in two different ways. It seems to me that in one way that the, 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 the better off people act more high strung about it and kind of act depending on the environments in a lot of places, it's not like this, but in some places like in New York, as I describe in the book, people get really worked up about getting into a good preschool and that kind of thing. So on one hand, we have the better off, better educated people making a bigger deal about it, but the people for whom preschool has the greatest benefits seem to be lower income people. And the benefits are not the kind of things that people think they're getting from boutique preschools, you know, like special education and whatever kind of like art history or whatever that you get in a fancy preschool, but instead some fairly bare bones capacities to, um, as I put it, to kind of sit around and be messed with by adults to kind of live in that world of compliance, which, you know, I'm not entirely sympathetic with, but that's the world we have. Have you witnessed firsthand any of the hyper competitiveness involving parents trying to land their kids in a highly sought after preschool? Yeah. So this is the theme that you read about a lot in, in this preschool. When people do talk about the kind of crazy preschool environments, they'll talk about people trying to get their kids on waiting lists, kids who haven't even been born yet. Right. And so I had this experience. I'd, I went over to this preschool preview event in San Francisco, which I was correct in expecting it to be a little bit more frou-frou, a little bit more intense and competitive than Oakland is. And when I went there, I was you know, standing next to a couple at a French immersion school and the guy at the, uh, the, the the man from the school said, so how old is your child? And I'm sure he said it in a French accent. And the um, parents kind of laughed and then he laughed with them. And they're like, and he's like, oh yeah. He said, I, we talked to you before. He's negative months old, he said, and meaning that the kid was, and then I, I look over and sure enough, the woman was was pregnant, you know, and they were talking about getting this kid who hadn't been born yet onto a waiting list or onto a, onto a waiting list for a, a competitive preschool in San Francisco. There was one blatant area that I saw around in our area. And so I, I, mean, I have to assume it's not an isolated incident that, that this is something that happens. And it's, it is more, more uh, competitive in San Francisco than it is in Oakland. So San Francisco being somewhat like New York in that way. That is just insane. Chapter three yeah. is titled Not Playing Around. It brings us to youth sports. You visited a youth soccer tournament in Las Vegas involving around 500 teams to speak with these kids' parents. What was your goal when you went there, and what did you ultimately find out? 
so my my goal or my expectation when I went there, because I figured it was, you know, at this point, my book was not all that well built. And so my expectation, I thought, well, I would get the, you know, what I call juicy nuggets of parental crazy talk. You know, I thought that you'd get these frothing parents, these angry, competitive parents doing crazy textbook things on the sidelines. And I saw a couple of those things. But mostly what I saw was just parents doing their best and kids and parents kind of under, you know, under a, a certain amount of stress. And so, yeah, so I kind of most cynically, I wanted to, uh, I wanted parents to incriminate themselves, you know, for my expose, but more holistically, I, I just wanted to kind of like glimpse the way that the system of club sports, competitive club sports involves families and in, into what degree and in what intensity. You're not the first youth sports commentator to explore Johan Huizinga's 1938 book, Homo Ludens, which unravels the philosophy on the spirit of play. In your opinion, why is playing in its numerous forms so important for humans? Well, I'll tell you, I can't overstate how awesome I think that book is. Homo Ludens is, is just a profound look into kind of human nature and the kind of importance of play that I take from Huizinga, which I, I agree with. First of all, it's simply fundamental. It's one of these things that I think it's important as they talk about like status and, and that kind of thing. It's important to kind of like understand kind of how we operate as people and play is a really important, you know, as Huizinga shows, it's a very fundamental way by which people engage, you know, even archaic people engage with the world. They engage with the world through play. They make things up. They make basically plays, the theater of their experience. And um, so on one hand, it's, I think it's just important to kind of recognize how fundamental it is, you know, more, even more fundamental than our instinct as rational beings is our instinct as meaning creating beings, people who create meanings through, through play. And then the way Hoisinga draws that forward into time, you know, is, is in our present time, as he says, you know, it's a play is a, is a way that human beings together collectively generally create meaning together and, and create meanings spontaneously. So you use the term spontaneous, which is a kind of, which I take to be a kind of Kantian term, which is that he is kind of summoning up the idea of freedom. He's summoning up an idea that out of nothing in a world of compulsions, natural and social, humans through play are able to carve out a space of spontaneity and freedom and unpredictability. And it's a beautiful thing, I think. It's a, um, and, and so, so, so kind of holding to a kind of fundamental philosophical conception of play in this, in this way, I think is um, is a good way to kind of like have a critical standard for viewing kind of what goes on in the name of play when it comes to family life and in in institutionalized competitive sports. How has the evolution in the competitiveness of youth sports affected the value of play? Well, it's certainly altered it, right? So one of the you know it's because all of this stuff now for a lot of parents, a lot of this stuff is oriented toward college. The idea of play then becomes subordinated to this kind of distant, it becomes an instrumental good to this higher, this kind of other good of getting your kid into college via a scholarship or preferred admission for a recruited athlete and that kind of thing. So in that regard, it kind of simply diminishes the, the kind of free aspect of play by subordinate, subordinating, turning it into a function of some other, of some other kind of like venal purpose. But on top of that, just within play within the sports themselves the, the the you know there's this you know we just have this especially when it comes to kids there's this very powerful impulse and trajectory of of systematizing things and scientizing them and so you see the understanding of play you know kids join soccer or whatever to play soccer or they or that's what they think but the, the institution around them the kind of competitive club and the, the kind of leagues and the competitive environment and their own parents are thinking about, well, how can we make these kids better soccer players? You know, how do we turn, how do we develop them? How do we systematically develop them? And you'll see these clubs that advertise um, the scientific methods they use to turn the raw matter of kids playing sports into refined and developed, scientifically improved athletes. And so I think that fundamentally, it just, it changes the, I mean, you know, hopefully for the most part, kids are able to retain some sense that what they're doing is playing but there's a lot of forces that kind of on the outside of them that are, you know, kind of conspiring and robbing them of that understanding and trying to kind of turn it into, into something else. Well, it's funny that these leagues and these teams, these franchises, however you want to refer to them, use science to talk about how they're developing kids when the science really is settled with regards to kids 
not specializing in a sport before a certain age, that it is bad for them. It not only leads to burnout, but more injuries because you're doing very specific things for that sport and that kids kids need that variety in order to stay interested about things. Having said all of that, though, is there a specific age that you think specialization in one sport does start to become more worth it? I think that, first of all, it probably varies from sport to sport. Um, I mean, obviously, you're not going to start being a gymnast at the age of 15, you know, but my desire is that it would be as late as possible. And I think that a lot of people who are concerned about the health of kids want to delay it for as long as possible. In soccer, which my, you know, my son, which I was involved with my son, and we kind of went through this whole thing about whether to go the competitive route. I talked to a couple different people who have a couple different answers. You know, one, one guy said he thought it was eight or nine or at least by eight or nine, you had to be in competitive, right? You had to be doing intensive competitive stuff. If you were just doing rec and the, you know, then the train is going to be out of the station, you mm-hmm. know, if you, if you don't start by, by not, by the age of nine other sports, you know, I imagine it's different, but like, you know, like you, I'm, I'm a big fan of having it be as late as possible, having kids play as many sports, sports as possible um, for as long as possible. And not just because it's good in some holistic sense, but it's also good for whatever sport they're playing. But I can't remember if I use this in the book, but one I think I edited it out. But one of my favorite examples is Akeem Olajuwon, how he, you watch that guy do what he did, the magic he did in the low post, his unbelievable footwork. And you realize that, well, that's, he got that from playing soccer. You know, yep. he got that, that, those amazing feet from playing soccer. And he turned that into his own kind of trademark of low post excellence. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing, and it's, and it's all over in sports where you can alignment being better because he was a wrestler, you know, or, or uh, that kind of thing. And so the cross training benefits of, of sports are all over the place. But the fact is that, you know, the, the machinery of, of the clubs and the leagues is such that in the, in the way that parents relate to each other is such that you take a hit if you take your kid out of a sport for a few months of the year when the other kids are going to be staying in it and getting better. And you kind of, you risk, you know, the kid losing his place in a club or simply, you know, or in the short term getting worse, even though it may in the long term benefit him. So one of the problems here is that the, is that the logic of, of competition in this kind of, in this world of, you know, parents competing with parents, kids competing with kids, clubs competing with clubs, is everyone has a very powerful incentive to observe short term calculations. And this long term thing is that these larger considerations kind of fall by the wayside. Chapter four is titled Parents, Kids, and the Internet. Matt, I have to admit, you became a hero of mine when I discovered that at the time of writing this book, you had not given a cell phone to your eighth grade daughter. Considering that literally every other kid in her grade had one, how difficult was that? It was kind of difficult and we had a lot of conversation, but I feel like she kind of accepted fairly early on. She's a kind of debating kid. She's a persuadable kid, <laughs> although she wants to persuade you as well. And I think that she basically kind of understood the logic. She kind of accepted the logic of our position. It was easier because I'm a philosophical fanatic, whereas my wife is just very steadfast. And, the, and so she was just very set on it and she's very strong and she didn't feel any need to kind of like buckle. And so the two of us kind of reinforced each other. And so in that way, it was a little easier. And also, I one of the things I talk about in the book at the end of that chapter is how I, in fact, if you really view these systems as antagonists, as your enemy, which I think you're smart to do, then there's a certain pleasure in telling them to go screw themselves, you know, like, this is my family, this is not your family. And so if you have you and your wife or you and your spouse are, are both kind of on the same page in this, then there's, it's kind of a kick really to kind of like realize that you can say no to this stuff. At the same time, when we, we had to give her a phone at the end of eighth grade because she you know, made a fairly plausible case that <laughs> she had to keep in contact with these people. And also it was COVID, so she was estranged from her friends physically. And so um, it was a bummer in a way, you know, like I didn't, because I felt like I had to, you know, at some point I had to admit defeat. Well, and, it's the end I of an era also. It's almost like yeah. the, the end of uh, a certain innocence of their childhood, right? Yes. Yeah. There's so much stuff. All of a sudden, boom, this, you know, the, you know, the worldwide id is there for them to kind of like download into their own brains. And it's a bummer. And, you know, in in one of the, it's a real, you you come to enjoy watching your kids read all the time. But now that their attention is taken by this other stuff, you notice them reading less. And and it's, um, there's a lot of not good about it. And one of the things I talk about in this chapter is the way in which this choice, our autonomy in this area has been kind of taken from us by this weird feeling that, we don't have a choice. If this stuff is inevitable, these choices are made for us by the sheer historical force of technology. And, you know, 
I can make a kind of philosophical case against it, but I'm also an example of someone who eventually has to yield, and it's a bummer. It's, it bums me out. I admit it as well as somebody who uses social media. It probably belongs in that not good category. Why was the MTV's real world so pivotal for television in the early 1990s, and how does this relate to the sick brilliance of social media? Yeah, so when MTV introduced this idea of, I mean, reality television was not an entirely new thing. There had been other versions of it before, but I think the, real, the first real prominent example of it was the real world. And, and so, as I put it in the book, you know, MTV, um, they solved a programming problem and a budget problem at the same time. They'd had videos, which they got for free. So a lot of their airtime was taken up with free content because people were giving them videos in exchange for exposure. And it was a, you know, it was a win-win for people. But videos, by the time Real World was about to come around, you know, videos had lost their cachet, and, and um, MTV needed a new needed new free content. And one of the things they discovered was that people could give them free content simply by being, you know, people were willing to be on TV, and that was free. You know, they were willing to do it for free. And so, in this way, it prefigures social media in that you know the they were providing people on real world, we're providing content in exchange for recognition, basically. And that's what we do now. And um, everyone does now in participating in social media. Well, especially with the advent of videos, too, it turns everybody into not even 15 minutes of fame TV stars, it turns them into 15 seconds of fame TV stars. Yeah, so the, the, that's a thing is that the um, I should digress a little bit. When I started writing this chapter, it was common among a lot of people, especially young, progressive writers, it was common to kind of defend the internet defend technology against it's kind of curmudgeonly critics like me, you know, and, and talk about us being Luddites and nostalgists and all this stuff. You know, that changed when Trump got elected and all of a sudden people started freaking out about the effect that social media had had on Trump's rise. And so when I wrote this book, I kind of wrote, I wrote this chapter, I, when I started writing this chapter, I thought of myself writing against a kind of elite consensus on technology that it was essentially good, that, that people participating in social media was a kind of emancipatory thing. <laughs> but then, so I, I, early drafts of this chapter I wrote at a time when this was the consensus. And then at a certain point, I'm like, wait a minute. Now, no, everyone agrees with me now. So so I, I'm kind of like I was going to bash it up against a door that was suddenly opened, you know. And so I had to kind of reorient myself in that chapter. So anyway, one, one of the things I argue is that in this mode of taking on the technophiles is that the internet is, is a kind of dumb thing. Beat down, it's a kind of dumb technology. It, it hacks two dumb parts of our brains, you know, or one dumb part of our brain and one easily hacked part of our brain. It, it, it hacks our weakness for distraction and it hacks our need for recognition. But did it from the very beginning of the internet era. People were getting online basically because one, it was a, it was a, it was a droning distraction that they were kind of very, had a great weakness for. And two, it allowed them at very low cost to kind of present themselves to other people and gain recognition from other people. And so now, 25 years later, we're in this kind of mode where technology or social media brings these two elements together in kind of like individual things. So TikTok, for example, the brevity of TikTok combined with the fact that, so you can see that the kind of distraction imperative in its brevity and the recognition imperative in the fact that it's people performing on videos. And so it is just this kind of like the march of this logic and the refinement of this logic to this point now, we're so susceptible to it. And they're so good at feeding our kind of tendencies, the little nuggets that they that they have. Yeah, the technology is intended to work this way. You talk about a book titled Hooked, where a tech entrepreneur discusses how companies can produce tiny bits of code to seemingly control users' minds. Interestingly enough, a recent Books on podcast, Michael Moss, just spelled something out very similar in his new book, which by total happenstance, is also titled Hooked regarding health food companies further addicting its consumers to food. And one of the keys to both forms of control is variability. How is variability crucial in big tech causing users to crave social media more? Now, one thing I'd like to point out before I answer that question is the fact that the Hooked in the second book, the book that you refer to on food, was used in this kind of ironic, dark way. The Hooked in the first book by this tech entrepreneur was used in a kind of promising, enthusiastic way, you know, speaking to other potential tech entrepreneurs, how you can hook people, right? They're talking about the same basic thing, but tech is governed by this kind of cynical logic of control in, in such, in so explicitly that people are, are kind of unashamed about talking about their desire to kind of manipulate other people. So yeah, so the question of, of variability 
I'm not really an expert in either computer code or in behavioral psychology, but you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that the variable schedule of rewards, this idea that people, their cravings will be stoked in a more kind of sustained way if the stimuli that are presented to them are presented to them in a kind of unpredictable sequence. If you can kind of like time when the pellet is that the rat pellet's going to come down the, <laughs> the, the little chute for you to eat, at a certain point, you can kind of relax a little bit because you know it's coming. But if you don't know when it's coming, if it comes unpredictably, that keeps your vigilance higher, keeps your desire at a higher level and keeps your interest at a higher level. And that is what I call the kind of rat lab psychology, logic and morality ethics that tech designers apply to you know, their customers. Well, back to your TikTok reference or Facebook videos is the same way where users are literally scrolling down the screen to video after video after video, most of which aren't more than 15 or 30 seconds. And there's no context to these videos. They're not related in any sort of way other than the fact that they're videos on this platform. Right. Again, I'm not inside the, the design brains of these people who do this stuff, but you know, so I have to suspect that when you go through what you describe as a kind of video after video after video, to you, it seems like this kind of droning kind of doom scroll, right, with the kind of rhythmic inevitability to it. But there's probably a degree of variability that's built in there, right? We experience it as kind of a consistent thing, but that consistency of our interest is probably built on some degree of manipulated variability. Um, again, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in this stuff, so I don't really know, but I just, you know, I, I feel like I'm justified in my cynicism though, about, <laughs> about the motives and, in, in, in operations of these, of these, of these platforms. Yeah. And your biggest concern with giving your own kids over to this technology isn't about their physical or mental Ooh. well-being, but it's that it would make them unfree. What do you mean by that? The more I read, the more I'm, the more I'm convinced that there are some well-being considerations that are worth, worth paying attention to, but more fundamentally, I just feel like, you know, you see your kid on a device and you see them kind of engage with it at a particular kind of compulsive intensity. And you realize that there's nothing they do that's not a device that brings from this degree of kind of compulsive, weirdly kind of addictive looking behavior. And then you think that, you know, somebody did this. Another dude wrote the code that's making my kid act compulsively. You know, you think about it in that way, you think about the human terms of like, this is something that people are doing to other people it kind of gets your back up a little bit, you know, and you think this is a, something of an outrage. And, and we, again, the kind of the ubiquity and the ine- feeling of inevitability that comes with this technology is such that we're encouraged to forget this dimension of it. You know, we're encouraged to forget the fact that this is something that people are doing to other people. And so I feel like, you know, I, I have this interest in my, my kids' dignity as people, you know, and and so when I see them being, you know, to the extent that they, they don't play, we have no video games in our house and the younger kids don't have phones. But they get their, you know, get their hands on devices every once in a while. They get, you know, get a MacBook on their lap to look at Google Maps or something. The next thing, you know, then you just realize that this stuff is just brain candy. And when you're watching them, you realize that they're, I think, I can't remember exactly quite how we put it in the book, but that their subconscious impulses, you know, are being hacked for profit. Acting according to our subconscious impulses is, 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 is as I see it, as a kind of, by definition, un, an unfree state. And so it's a, kind of something that tease up a little bit of resentment for me when I see it be, you know, my, my kids kind of like falling into that dynamic. Well said. Chapter five is schools and families. I look at the elementary school graduation as such a pompous circumstance, Matt, but as someone who has been through a few of these, how do you feel about them? Trey, I would like to talk to you in a few years when you're going through your first grade school, when your, your own child's grade school graduation and see whether or not you have to brush aside a tear when the, uh, because it's like, it's very, I mean, it's just like, a, it's a kind of nostalgia pageant mm. and um, it's a funny thing. And again, I'm, you know, throughout this book, I try not to come down too hard. I basically to recognize that parents are kind of operating according to like an environment that influences them. But, and so I take a kind of a lighthearted view of the elementary school graduation, even as I point out that there's a kind of silliness about it, you know, that the, the, the idea that there's basically parents in this whole thing, there's like this parent, you know, kind of the, the uh, in, in our school, they have a slideshow and you're looking at the kids when they're younger and the parents are encouraging that our parents are kind of sitting in the background. And, it, and it's, it's a little bit weird to me. And I was, you know, before this even happened, I, you know, as a, as a parent, I would looking at ki- at pictures, I would be a little self-aware about acting super nostalgic about my kids in front of my kids. You know, that's, Oh, you know, like, what does that do to your kid? What kind of, I did not, I was not raised with that degree of nostalgic self-awareness about my own growth as a person, whereas kids now are. And so when I kind of joke about how in the elementary school graduation 
ceremony, you have in the slideshow, you have parents cueing their fifth graders to get nostalgic about themselves as third graders, you know, that there's just this degree, this articulated level of temporal self-awareness of, you know, kids, we encourage kids to kind of be extreme, you know, give them the means to be extremely self-aware about how old they are, which is, I think, you know, historically simply a novel thing. And who, I mean, I have no idea what the uh, psychological consequences of that are, but it, nonetheless, its novelty is striking to me. So your three kids, while they all sound pretty different, you admit that they had one thing in common with elementary school. They all cried a lot about homework. Now, research has shown that assigning homework to elementary school age kids does not provide a whole lot in the way of academic benefits. So what does homework assigned at the elementary level say about schools in their relationships with families? This kind of like these are kind of larger themes in my book is that institutions like club sports and schools and preschools and universities and colleges, families are kind of resources to exploit, right? All these different institutions have a kind of, you know, various survival needs and anxious competitive parents confront these families as a resource that they can put to use. And so in this case, you know, schools are of all the institutions I talk about, you know, public schools are perhaps the most systematically beset by hostile forces, you know, and, you know, somewhat deservedly to a degree, but also just just their nature that people are never satisfied with, with how well schools are doing. And so schools are always looking for, you know, trying to wait, you know, find ways to improve themselves, find kind of new angles. And so one of the things that you've seen is in the development of both academic research and the behavior of schools and the formation of public policy about schools is the importance of parental involvement in schools. And um, we'll maybe get to that a little in, in a second, in more, uh, in more uh, detail. But um, one of the kind of just the curious ways in which you, this is expressed is the fact that I think for elementary schools, even though um, homework is shown to have, you know, fairly meager academic benefits, they nonetheless, schools nonetheless like to assign it, I think, because it kind of establishes a, a sort of tether between the home and the school. So it establishes this link where the school, you know, the school, this, you know, schools can kind of keep tabs on parents, parents can be enlisted to do, uh, to do some extra teaching for their kids, perhaps. Um, and um, and also be kind of brought into the school community in different ways. And so in, in a way, the, the importance that's placed on homework to, in spite of its, um, in, its kind of like unproven academic benefit, I think expresses, um, ironically expresses the, just the, uh, the, the, the you know, perpetually um, uh, embattled condition of, you know, of schools. They, they, they're always kind of like trying to do something new to satisfy people. Now, let's get to what you just briefly mentioned there. We are constantly told that parental involvement is important to a kid's education. Is there a value in parental involvement uh, involvement that's not necessarily quantified through grades? So one of the things, this is a kind of like a little, you know, one of the little bit of a autobiography I sprinkle into this chapter is that, you know, parental involvement, you know, parents speak of parental involvement in schools as if it's this, is this kind of magic bullet, you know, and it's, um, that, that parental involvement is the most important thing you, you hear and stuff like that. And so like, I was curious about that. You'd heard it and I took it for granted. And I heard it so often. And then I you know, started looking in the academic research on parental involvement and it's a lot more ambiguous. Like there's just, it's hard to measure. There's some things that work a little bit for some grades and it's, you know, it's ambiguous. And, and you may could, you know, depending on your kid, you, could, you may well get, get them through school without being particularly involved and it might not make any difference, you know? And, and uh, so anyway, I, so the, the sheer kind of like ambiguity of the research ended up being almost comical to me because it was so in contrast to the clear message that, you know, of, you know, the more parents are involved in school, the, the better their kids do kind of kind of message. But um, one of the other things I found, however, is that um, there's a there's a kind of other dimension of considering parental involvement, which is the kind of school benefits rather than individual parents get involved with their with with school for you know, oftentimes for individual reasons to help their own kids. Um, and this, this can be a different, lot of different ways of, of being involved. But one of the most, much more kind of robust, it seems, in, um, in, in, in the positive effects are those that concern the school. So when parents get involved with, with you know, helping their kids or trying to, you know, um, participate in school to help their kids, it turns out that they may or may not be helping their kids all that much. But the, the, the real benefits seem to accrue in many cases to the schools. And so there's a collective benefit to parental involvement. And, and, um, and uh, 
that uh, you know that you that uh, I uncovered in a couple in, in some in some fairly convincing research. And so that is you know so again that kind of like flips the normal kind of like set of motivations that you see uh, kind of people uh, acting according to you know, parents that you know parent anxious parents trying to get the best for their kids. They go to the schools to try to help you know to you know, do the prescribed things in the mind in their minds they're doing it because. They're gonna, this is this is all the research says that parental involvement helps kids, but what they're really doing is helping the school, not so much their kids. Chapter six is titled "Striving Together." It is the first of two chapters dedicated to college admissions. College admissions in the U.S. is a ridiculously competitive process to determine who ends up racking up tens of thousands of dollars in debt for an experience and degree that may do very little to actually prepare young adults for the real world. Who was Wilbur Bender, and how is he instrumental in making the world a worse place on this subject? Yeah, I, I describe Wilbur Bender as something, someone in the, in the mold of uh, Robert Moses or Dick Cheney, who two two people who were very powerful, thank by virtue of the kind of slightly obscure positions they held as vice president and as whatever Moses' position was in the state of New York. Um, in that uh, Bender was the admissions director at Harvard, and he um, in the fifties and sixties, I believe, and um, he he kind of like pioneered this idea of uh, what Malcolm Gladwell called the best graduates approach rather than the best, instead of picking the best student, um, Bender had this idea that, well, you know, you see, see, see if you could game out who would be the best Harvard graduate. So it was less, as, Mal, as Gladwell puts it, less about treatment effects and more about selection effects, about, you know, um, we, we could actually select our graduates when they're merely in high school. And then the concern for, for um, what, what Bender was trying to optimize here was it, it was a kind of character standard. People who would go into the world not necessarily as the you know the greatest scholars, um, although they you know he wanted smart kids, obviously, but also as like the most kind of high-powered people in in their fields and like you know in politics and in other areas. And so it came it became a kind of the first step in in um, in colleges, in, in selective colleges, kind of fetishizing the idea of character and kind of systematizing their way of, of um, selecting, selecting for character. And the irony in this whole kind of question of, of, of selection versus treatment effects, I argue, is that, is that one of the things that Bender did was to show to students that they could game the admissions process by kind of affecting this kind of the character that they thought he wanted or mm -hmm. that admissions people. And as a result, um, he kind of inaugurated a process whereby the, the admissions process in, um, in, in pretending to select a particular kind of kid became a machinery for making those kids um, turning, you know, so basically a kind of character formation disciplinary machinery for uh, selecting a particular kind of preferred teenager and um, not in and, and doing that, creating that teenager. Where do athletics departments fit in with the hyper competitive nature of colleges? I'm pretty I, I kind of mock athletics in my in you know college sports in my um, I was a jock in high school and I was always a big sports fan. But um, I have I, I kind of had a, something of a conversion experience and, you know, partly related to Joe Paterno. And it just kind of made me <laughs> kind of like step back and say, wait a minute, wh why do we have why do colleges have sports. I mean, why is it there? And then you're going to look at it in that way. You realize that sports, for the most part, especially when you think about um, both kind of high-level profit-making, money-making sports like football and basketball. You know, talking Division One here, obviously, um, but also they're kind of kind of lower-level sports like soccer and fencing and all that stuff. Um, that they're just part of this game, this this kind of competition that 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 the um, kind of image competition that the colleges are playing with each other. And so there, it's it's kind of hard to get rid of. You know, they you have to suspect that certain people in the college kind of administration are not all that thrilled about having sports teams that cost money and they, they cause problems, but you cannot relinquish this, this, um, marketing, um, this marketing tool. And so they, they, you know, continue to exist and they, their, their, um, academic function is utterly mysterious and their, um, the, 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 the problem that they cause for, for, um, schools in terms of, in terms of, um, image, you know, the, the fact that everyone knows that these athletes are, you know, getting on lower standards and they're, and they don't, you know, and I, you know, I went to grad school at Duke. I was, the, I was there, you know, teaching, you know, kind of 
basketball players and stuff. And I watched how they performed in the, in, in their, you know, their uh, small group you know, as a TA, you know, I had, you know, well-known basketball players in my, in my sections. And Who? Um, I don't want to talk. I don't want to like name names, but you know, people, I was there in the, in the, in the Christian Leitner era. Right. So in the, oh, wow. when they were, when they won, they were in four final fours in a row and Thomas Hill. Uh, Thomas Grant. Hill was Thomas Hill. Grant. I never had Grant. Um, Grant Hill was actually, I think, uh, was was reputed. I didn't I never had him, but he was reputed to be a, a, a solid student and a really, really good guy. Seems like an incredible. Uh, I mean, they were all, yeah, and they were all. I mean, they were all for the most part good guys. It was not like they were bad people, but clearly they were. They had not been um, accepted to the school by their according to their academic. Don't don't um, tell college basketball jobs. fans that Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley were good guys. They're going to be upset at that. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to speak Chris, Christian Leitner. I'm not going to speak for Christian Leitner. Christian Leitner actually seems to relish his his, uh, <laughs> his uh, status as a as a as a heel in the history of college basketball. So I, I will not I will not contradict his own self estimate. Um, That's fair. Um, um, but anyway, yeah. So so um, so it's just that you know, I mean, it's it's just a it's a racket. You know, it's like a I, I just I just don't understand. I mean, I think it's obvious to point out it's 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 that it doesn't fit, but mm -hmm. you know, it's another one, it's another aspect of this kind of like college behemoth that has kind of grown up, evolved around us as not just a set of practices, but a set of norms that we just simply accept. And, like, and then you step back and you think, wait a minute, you know, why is that there? And it's, it can be, it can be hard to answer that question. The seventh and final chapter is titled individually selected. The subtitle is the soft tyranny of holistic admissions. What in the hell are holistic admissions, Matt? So holistic admissions, the, the conceit of holistic admissions is that colleges, you know, going back to Wilbur Bender in a way, colleges are um, especially selective colleges because a lot of colleges have, don't really have the application numbers even to, uh, to support, a, you know, they, they, they accept most of their kids. And so it's not really a, most of their applicants. And so it's not really a, an issue. But for the this, this minority of selective colleges, the prestigious name brand colleges, um, they practice what's called holistic admissions and all of them speak all these code words these kind of that 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 kind of circulate in the admissions discourse and holistic admissions is this idea that they're looking taking a holistic view of the student not just his grades and and test scores but like his character and all this stuff and so so it's the so holistic admissions refers to the practice of looking at not just grades and test scores but these other character um signals which are which are provided through things like the, especially the admissions essays and uh, extracurricular activities, um, that kind of thing. Is there an obvious way that you would try to improve the college admissions process if you were in charge of things? So the reason that all this holistic, um, these holistic methods have been introduced is, you know, is touchy feely and as kind of, um, kind of nice as they're, as they're presented to sound, the deep rationale for it is basically that there's too many good applicants so that the, the uh, colleges have this kind of evolving challenge of getting kids to reveal themselves to them so that they can be accepted or rejected so if you have all grades and test scores you still have a huge population of kids that's bigger than your your entering class is going to is able to be and so you have to come up with new ways of distinguishing among them and my argument is that first of all this is just the you know going beyond that or going into this uh, kind of personal stuff is 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 is, is, is largely bogus it's morally bogus if not objectionable and because the selection things that you're claiming are in fact being performed by these kids and so there's the, the actual criteria they're not actually meeting they're not you're not discerning differences in kinds of kids what you're doing is inducing these kids to perform in a, in a particular way that suits you and so for that reason it is it's superfluous from, from the kind of basic fun selection challenge that they have they're aggrandizing themselves on these kind of moral on this moral ground by carrying out this competition at this kind of elaborate level of who the best person is but it's irrelevant to the um, enterprise of, of educating these kids and um, filling their classes. I've t spoke to people who said that, you know, if you, if you actually kind of talk to these admissions deans, they'll say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if you, if you kind of like, uh, if, you, if you take if the first, you know, 1,000 kids who are entering class and you trade it for the second or third 1,000 kids of, of, of the applicants that we reject, you really wouldn't make any difference in terms of the actual quality, the ability of the kids to thrive on uh, at the campus. So it's so this is all just kind of a, it's a separate it's a separate game that they're playing and it's it's unnecessary. And so I think that the for me the way to improve the college 
process to kind of emissions process to make it less stressful to make uh, to kind of remove this element of kind of moral manipulation from it is to is to um, would be to have something like admissions lotteries. I'm not the first person to introduce kind of like propose this. Um, but in admissions lottery, where in a um, degree of uh, some some level of some base level of kind of academic um, uh, performance is uh, is set, and beyond that, you pull names out of a hat. Um, I mean, it's it's probably it's there there are ways there there are things that make this unworkable, um, perhaps because it may involve one of the one of the problems that it may involve colleges. Um, the best way to do it would be for colleges to share information. Mm about their applicants, but that apparently runs afoul of, of antitrust laws. I haven't gone that deeply into this, but this does seem to be one, one challenge, but nonetheless, to kind of like holding that out there as a kind of counterfactual, as like what we might do if we were wanted to have a sane admissions process where kids were not encouraged to go this extra step and the extra step and the extra step to, to, to prove to distant admissions readers, how nice they are and good and virtuous they are, that that would be, um, just, just kind of thinking about that as a kind of standard where, because because what we're what they're basically trying to do is they basically converted a process whereby they're trying to master a degree of randomness in their in in their process they, that is they have at least too many good kids, they converted that that challenge of randomness into this other moral leverage that they exert, which I think is simply kind of like if you look at it skeptically, it's quite, it's it's quite um, it's quite troubling, and so. Um, an admissions lottery, I think, is a way of kind of like just thinking, just simply thinking about an admissions lottery and what that would do and why it makes sense is a good way of kind of coming to understand the excesses of the system as it's designed by the schools. Matt Feeney is the author of the new book, Little Platoons, A Defense of Family in the Competitive Age. Matt, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this very entertaining and wonderful book. Thanks a lot, Trey. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.